Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, Solar Warrior, welcome back and thank you for lending me your ears and the only non-renewable resource that you've got, that is your time. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, I'm so appreciative that you have chosen to also be listening to Suncast and for that, my heartfelt gratitude. If you are new to the show, I hope that you'll stick around all the way to the end and give us a chance to really earn your attention and your subscription to the podcast. Today's entrepreneur is so much more than your everyday average guest on Suncast. He is also an inventor, a philanthropist who has social impact at the core of every single thing that he does. Simon Doble is the founder and CEO of Solar Buddy, which is committed to uniting a global community to gift 6 million solar lights to children living in energy poverty by the year 2030, to help them continue studying after dark and to improve their educational outcomes. He's also the founder of a number of other companies that we talk about in today's interview. And he's the author of not one, not three, but 12 children's books focused on child safety, positive social messages, The man is a genuine gem. His innovative and creative approach to solar energy solutions for the humanitarian sector are what have connected us and inspired me to bring him on the show. I just want to say thank you to Simon for going way, way, way out of his way to come all the way to Southern California while I was traveling there and do this interview face to face. It was a genuine pleasure and I'm so grateful to you, Simon. I look forward to spending time with you again. And I hope through this interview, others can get a sense of the amazing human being that you are. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to this show. It is the only way that you will guarantee you won't miss out on our twice weekly content just like this. Short, informative, practical advice on Tuesdays, long, in-depth executive profiles on Thursdays, just like this one. Of course, you can always check out more than 450 founder stories and startup advice over at mysuncast.com. For now... Let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Well, as I said, I have my new friend, Simon Doble, the CEO of Solar Buddy, just fresh in from, well, Nashville by way of Australia. You're traveling around the world, Simon. Welcome to Suncast. Thank you very much. It's fantastic to be here. Lovely Long Beach, California. Yeah, here we are live in person. I haven't had a chance to do a ton of these in-person interviews, but they're always, always rewarding. It's one of the great privileges of what some would call work and we call, you know, living that we get to engage in these kinds of conversations in places like Long Beach. You know, thanks for taking time to come all the way out to Long Beach. And we're going to have, we're going to have a lot of interesting opportunities over the course of these few days to interact with folks here in America. What brings you to America, first and foremost. Well, I'm really pleased to be here. It's, it's lucky to be outside of Australia mm-hmm. after two years being being over there. But I'm here to develop and grow my team with Solar Buddy in America and, and grow our impact at what we do over here with corporates and school children across the country. So you, I've come to enjoy, appreciate, and learn, are a consummate and serial entrepreneur. Part of the way I generally dive into someone's background and story is through the lens of their family. So what was dinner like when you were a child around the dinner table? <laughs> That's a great question. Well, I'm the youngest of four by, by a few years. Yeah. I, I'm generally regarded, as my father used to say, the, the accident. Oh. <laughs> and, and because I, my birthday is very close to his, only two days apart, I'm generally regarded as his most expensive birthday present. <laughs> um, so dinner table, dinner table conversations were always very interesting. But my, my father was a businessman and, uh, you know, worked very, very hard. So generally it was conversations around work and, and, and school. And here are my brothers and sisters talk about their 
various lives because they're obviously in their teens when when I was younger. But yeah, learning, learning, open dialogue. Fascinated with what my father did for work and and how he conducted himself and how hard my mother worked in in raising us as children. Yeah, yeah, it was good, good fun. Did the work tend to come home or was it kept separate? Uh, I think back in the day, like we were talking in the 80s, um, my father would work long hours and he, he ran his own business and, you know, took it very seriously and had responsibility. I always remember him saying it wasn't just the people that worked for him, it was their families and, and everybody else that, that you take on. And, and I, you know, a lot of learning that, that I went through there that, that I still carry on now. But yeah, he, he would, he'd be proud of his work. So he'd come home and talk about it with us and, and share his knowledge and stuff. It was always, it was always quite interesting. There's three things there. One is I, I, I never take for granted the freedom that we have in, in our modern working environment. I, I remember being, you know, young, 10, 11, 12 years of age, sat with my father at 10 o'clock at night in his office. And, you know, he's, he's riding out. He wasn't, he, he couldn't type. You know, this is pre sort of yeah. laptops and uh, he, he didn't, he wasn't taught how to operate a typewriter or, or a computer. So he would write out his, his messages for his secretary in the morning or, or through a dictaphone. And, you know, he would, after days, hours and hours on the phone in his office, because we only had landlines back then. I always remember my father working hard, preparing for the next day. So his, so his secretary could pick up and, and move forward. And I always take that as a learning curve of and, be grateful for what we have now as far as our work environment. We have laptops, we have mobile phones, there are computers and, and the freedom that gives us and us to be sat here now doing what we're doing is, is freedom in itself. And I think a lot of people lose sight of that when we, we talk about the working environment that we're all in. And I think it's important to remember that, you know, the generation before us, you know, they were chained to a desk and, and they didn't have the option to go out and, and, do, and, and sit in a coffee shop for two hours and those sorts of things. So I always remember that, but, but, being really young, sort of, you know, toddler sort of age, I, I would love to sit underneath. My father had a, a, a sort of bordering table, shall we say, at home, and people would come in and work with him there. I always remember playing cars or Lego underneath there and, and you know, just enjoying the, the sort of the atmosphere, I guess. And one day, a gentleman that worked for my father sort of leant down and was playing with you know playing with the cars with me and everything and, and I, I was just part of the gang you know what I mean I, I you know and I'm so much younger than my my siblings it was you know that's Simon that's what he does he, he gets everywhere and, and I was always an active child and, and one day I, I'll never forget it I, I, I don't exactly know how old I was probably four or five maybe six I don't know and he, he was like you know you like you like hanging out and, and and listening and all that and he was like what do you want to do when you grow up and I was like, oh, I want to be like my dad, you know, I want to, I want to run a business like my father. And, you know, and he's like, well, I'll, I'll teach you, I, I'll tell you something that hopefully you remember for, for a long time. And I still do remember it. And I, I quote it quite often and tell people about it. He said, I'll teach you something and hopefully you won't forget it. And I was like, okay. He said, never chase money, Simon. It will always run away. If you attract it, it will always stay. And that was quite, uh, quite a powerful message for me as a young child to learn about the power of doing the right, doing right in the world and doing it for the right reasons and, and things would just be okay. And if you work really hard and you do, do everything uh, proactively and, and consciously doing the right, right thing, then um, success will come. And however you measure that success is, is how you, you, you put a smile on your face. Simon, you know, the conversations that you and I have had, I've come to know you as a multiculturalist and someone who has a, an individualistic pursuit of, of the things that you're passionate for. And I'd love to know if, if you have a distinct memory early in your life that exhibits your desire, despite all things, to go pursue the things that call your attention. I was always fascinated with the world growing up. I, I was always fascinated with learning the outline of each country, the capital city of each country, the flag of each country and the culture of each country as a child. And that, you know, I had all the, all the atlases and, and um, Britannica encyclopedias and all the rest of it. And I used to study them and found it very interesting. And I was moderately fascinated with, with the Cold War, the Iron Curtain, you know, growing up in England, Southwest England, you know, there was this constant sort of anxiety and fear around, you know, the Russians and, and, uh, nuclear threats and all the rest of it, and um, and I couldn't comprehend why there was so such such a 
disconnection between countries that were so close together. And, and I think the epitome of this was, was the, um, the Berlin Wall and, you know, how, how one huge wall could divide a whole city and a whole country and uh, how it was constructed so quickly and separated families and, and um, you know, the symbolic nature of it. And, you know, when it, when it came down or started to come down, that was, that was a huge moment in my life. I, I made my way there to, I was 16 years old and made my way to, to Berlin to witness it. And, no way, and, uh, at 16. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was in Southwest England and, and uh, ventured over there. And, and I, I just felt completely compelled to be part of something that was historical and, and, and hugely transformative for, um, for so many people, you know, and, and I wanted to witness it. I wanted to be a part of it. And, and I think that being there and, and witnessing the people reconnecting and people coming from East Berlin into West Berlin and seeing brand new Mercedes Benzes and, and, and flash shops and all the rest of it um, for the first time. And McDonald's, seeing the McDonald's for the first time, was just standing back and witnessing that was, was quite profound to me. And I probably carried that through my life, in all fairness. I, I pride myself in being able to observe and understand and, and witness and, and not interrupt and, and interfere, but just, you know, I apply that to some of the designs I do and modeling that I create. And that's, that's just having a, wi a window to the world in some ways, you know. And, um, and I think that probably formed out of then. You know, that was always a really important time for me. But I think going to university as well, like I mentioned, I grew up in rural England. You know, it wasn't very multicultural at all. And moving to London from, you know, the age of 17 and a half, 18 or whatever. And in my, in my first lecture at university, there was every, you know, extremely multicultural. And, and, you know, some of my good friends over the next couple of years were from all parts of the world and, and studied, you know, practiced different religions. And, and that to me was, was a, a really probably more important to me than the actual studying I did at university, to be fair, like learning about different cultures and different people in, in, in different ways of, of going about their lives. And, and that's probably carried me forward as well. What did your parents have to say about your trip to, to Berlin? We don't talk about it very often. <laughs> it's, it's, um, I, I went back to Berlin in 1991. I left England in, in the summer of 19, beginning in the summer of 1990, I was just turned 17. I worked in Berlin for about 18 weeks, I think it was. 16 hour a day, seven days a week, 96 hours a week I was working. So we were in East, East Berlin, rebuilding that to, to Western standards because they wanted to relocate Bonn, bon, which was the current capital of, of West Berlin. They wanted to really connect it and, and rebuild Berlin to be the capital of the country. And they wanted to do it overnight. So there was a huge amount of work there. And for me, it was, it was just part of being involved. You know, I, I wasn't a builder. I'm not, you know, I didn't have a trade. I just wanted to be involved in, in being that, that place in, in, in time. I sort of went as a boy and came back a man, really, you know. I, I, I sort of grew and broadened my shoulders and learned how to fend for myself and, and, and learned how to work really hard. 96 hours a week on a building site is, is tough going, you know. And that probably gave me a work ethic that's probably never left me as well. Was there anything that you can think about that you always wanted to do, but like you always thought, I'm going to be this, I'm going to do this kind of work, and, and that's not, you never went down that path? I quite often wanted to be... Uh, a corporate lawyer a, uh, or a corporate psychologist, something like that, you know. Um, God knows why, but that maybe too many TV shows growing up. I always wanted to be my own boss. I always wanted to create my own identity and, and, and set my own path. And, and once I realized that, that business is a way of doing that and expressing yourself and being an individual and, and being proud of what you achieve and, and creates you a box to stand on and, and, um, and demonstrate you know, the impact that you can have. Once I realized that, there was no turning back, really. Simon, what strikes me is that in your, you know, in your prime, it sounds like you found yourself in a personal challenging time where we all tend to get caught up in our own darkness and lose perspective. How did the perspective of this Time Magazine article from, as I recall, 2011, how did that unlock for you what I know to be a deep passion for helping other people who are less fortunate than you? To be blunt, it was, it was literally like a sledgehammer to my head. It, it woke me up. It shook me. It, it gave me goosebumps. It made me realize that 
here I am feeling sorry for myself. Here I am in a wonderful country, sunshine every day, a light that turns on, a roof over my head, food in the fridge, a running water, a flushing toilet, and I'm feeling sorry for myself. What the hell am I doing with my life? And if I want to change things, I've got to change myself first. And in that reading that article, I, I remember where I was. I remember how I was feeling. I, I remember everything about it. And it was, it was without sounding profound. It was, it was almost an awakening. It was, you know, I've been I've been in this hole for so long. I've been despondent and feeling sorry for myself and feeling a deep injustice in the world. And then I read this, and I was like. Everything about me is in this article. I'm in a dark place. I don't know if I'm Australian or English. Am I an Englishman living in Australia? My children are Australian, and do, am I a refugee? Do I, you know, like, without sounding ridiculous, where do I belong? You know, and and I read this article, and it was about people that millions, hundreds and hundreds of millions of people that are in complete abject darkness every single day and every single night, not because of any particular situation apart from where they were born, and the injustice of that. And then I read about refugees that had no lights and children dying in refugee camps because of the fumes they were breathing from kerosene lanterns. And I'm like, here I am. How off the mark can I be feeling sorry for myself when, when this is going on in the world? And I just felt completely and utterly compelled to devote the rest of my life to doing something about it. And, and I have done, and I'm proud of that, and I continue to do so. And is it selfish to say... It saved my life? I don't, I don't think so, because it generally did. It generally did. I wouldn't be sat here talking to you now if I hadn't read that article. Talk about, as an entrepreneur and an innovator, the spark of an idea that led you to form Brightbeam. Um, so once I read this article, and, and it's still online now, you can, you can read it, I, I was just completely engrossed with, with the, the stats and, and mortified that I didn't know about it. I traveled the world before I... I got to Australia, leaving England, you know, I've been fortunate to, to be all around the world. And I'd experienced energy poverty. I'd, I'd, I'd been there, but I hadn't comprehended it. I didn't experience it as far as, you know, the real life, everyday notion, notion of it. And, and, you know, once I read it, I was completely compelled. And then I read more and I read more and I read more. And I, I, I couldn't consume the information quick enough around you know, not just not just energy poverty in its strictest sense, but how it impacted so many people and what that meant to their ongoing circumstances of poverty and, and everything like that. And once I read this and, and that led me down the, the rabbit hole of refugee camps and and different situations like that and energy poverty within camps and, and you know, starting to learn around the technology of solar and, and the ability to actually change this. Um, I sort of stumbled on the, the, the concept of, you know, there's kerosene ration cards in refugee camps, families queuing up every day with kerosene ration cards just to get their daily dose of kerosene to put into lanterns to then burn inside tents, chimneyless, windowless tents in refugee camps. Once I stumbled on all this sort of information, that was that was the essence of the first idea for me was, well, refugees are the, the most marginalised, victimised people in the world generally. And, you know, if I can help one refugee, then I, that's something good to be proud of. And I thought, well, let's, let's try and mount, we'll have a look at that particular problem. And, and um, so I purchased a humanitarian tent, ones that you see on CNN and stuff, and uh, I brought it over to Australia, put it up in, in my sister's back garden and, and immersed myself in what it would actually be like to, to live in a refugee tent. You lived in one? Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to, I just had to feel it. I had to experience it. I had to comprehend what it would be like to be in such a circumstance of burning kerosene inside a lantern. It gives off this terrible toxic smoke inside a windowless chimneyless tent night after night, day after day. I had to, I had to experience it. I felt, I genuinely felt I wasn't being a good human being if I didn't put myself in that position. Days, weeks, I was in there for three months. So... You know, it's it's a little bit ridiculous to say I was living in a refugee tent. I was, you know, I was... I was Carrying on with normal life. Yeah, as much as I could, but I was immersing myself in a problem as much as I could as well. And, you know, eventually I I used my, my design, my 
innovator's head, but but mixed with with my business mind and also my my construction background, and and stru- struck on the idea of, well, when we build a house, right, we build an external wall and an internal wall, whether that's timber or or whatever, and then there's a cavity in between the two, the internal and the external walls. And that's where we put our wire in and our plumbing, right? Our wires for our electricity, our light switches and, and our plumbing pipes. And I'm sat there and I'm sat there and I'm, I'm looking around this tent and trying to consider different ways of doing things and, and stumble on the fact that the tent poles that hold up these tents are hollow. And that's perfect cavity. That's a cavity of a, of, of, of a, of a building, of a construction. And the, the hollow tent poles are what hold up the tent well, why don't we do exactly what we do on a, on a building within a tent instead of fiddling around with the fabric and trying to work out different things? So I took the center tent pole and, and um, cut out uh, some windows and did a stress test on it and, um, and put, some, put a strip of PCB, uh, PCB LEDs inside the, the hollow tent pole with some batteries and um, put a solar panel on the roof and plugged in the panel and it charged and the lights came on and... And um, suddenly I had integrated structural, integrated lighting of a temporary structure of an elongated support element. That sounds like it came straight from your patent. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I, yeah. So it's, it's an integrated light element of an elongated support element of a, stru- of a temporary structure. Yeah. There's, there's the corporate <laughs> lawyer coming out. That sounded, that sounded very official, Simon. <laughs> um, and, so- and thus Bright Beam was born. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Double entendre. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's right. And then various spin-offs from that, which we've talked about. But yeah, that was that was a light bulb moment, and um, and that was that was probably a moment in my life where, you know, there was there was this notion that okay, I can do something. Yeah. And once I realised it had never been considered, no one had ever thought of that before. No one had ever patented it or, or even innovated that 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 idea before. That was like okay, that's cool. You know, this is this is fun. Um, knowing that it, it potentially could, hopefully, um, have an impact on people's lives as well, then then uh, that's that's a great thing as well. So yeah, that's really marvelous. I love the idea of that light bulb moment, quite literally, and how it set the path for you on not of on something what I would say is more than philanthropy. You know, if you if you don't mind, I want to ask a question that I'm sure is in the mind of folks that are listening. I presume that you are a successful real estate developer and you are able to now then go and fund this humanitarian effort through the wealth that you've created for yourself. You've created numerous businesses, only some of them are focused on Solar Buddy and Brightbeam, et cetera. Broadly speaking, how do you think about not just this, but funding your ventures, getting them off the ground and self-sustaining? Well, I'll, I'll be frank and honest. I, I wasn't in a safe financial position then. I, you know, a, a tough divorce and expensive lawyers and, you know, uh, a broken heart and, and, and a clouded mind. It, it costs you money, you know. So I was essentially starting again, and that that, that in itself is quite pivotal in 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 the, in the concept of what that can create you to for the direction you need to go in. You know, you're not constrained by history. You're not constrained by you know, the wagons being towed behind you and, and, and the weight of that. You, it's almost like, okay, let's let's start something new. And, and and the search was on in my mind, even in the very darkest of dark spots, the search was on in my mind that I needed to find something with purpose. I needed to find something that meant something beyond, you know, the, the basics of life, you know, roof over your head, car in a garage and all that sort of stuff. That was the drive and the desire to, to go and buy a tent and live in it, not just about obviously finding the solution to hopefully help people, but to walk on that path of, of purpose and, and, you know, develop businesses and, and, and ideas and innovations that, that mean things to people, not, not just another thing to put on a shelf, you know. And that was quite interesting. And I think I've, I've sort of continued on that even, you know, all, all these years later and, and continue to really consider different industries and different problems and trying trying to approach those problems with a r- real social conscience and, and develop businesses that make money but have a purpose and a, and a, and a drive first before um, before finances come into it 
Yeah, it goes back to the mentor uh, that you mentioned early in your childhood who said, never chase money. It'll run away from you. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Yet, pragmatically speaking, you have to fund Brightbeam being put into a, uh, a refugee camp. Mm-hmm. Did you have experience with grant writing or, you know, or, or would you say that your, your, your business entrepreneurial power there is being able to find the right partners and have them help you fund it? Like, and how, how, would, how, do, how would one go about that if someone has a similar idea that you have? Well, it's uh, so roll back a number of years and, and I'm, I'm in this tent and I've made this prototype and we've unearthed uh, the concept that, you know, it hadn't been done before. And, and we've, you know, I've researched the supply chain of the UN and, you know, this fitted in perfectly, it didn't disrupt it. It wasn't a case of designing a new tent or, or anything like that. And, but ultimately I was sat there going, well, what the hell do I do with it now? You know, I mean, I'm now in Australia, I'm you know, a divorced dad of three and had never done anything in the humanitarian space before. certainly never done anything with the UN before. And I've got this prototype, this concept, this idea that I felt was important enough to be put in front of people that should see it. I had no knowledge of, of this, you know, erroneous sort of ongoing show, show your innovation at trade fairs and apply for contracts with the UN and do do testing and pilots and all the rest of it. I, I didn't know it, that, that could take two years or three years even to get the, you know, a meeting with, with the people that make the decisions. I didn't know none of that. I just had a, a deep desire to go above and beyond and improve myself in, in to myself, really. Um, not not really anybody else, just prove myself to myself that I was capable and, and give some confidence back to myself. So I got on a plane and I flew to Geneva. I put my prototype in a in a gun case. It was a tent pole, and I cut it in half and found a rifle case that that fitted the the length of the tent pole perfectly, and and didn't think anything strange about that at all. This was post nine eleven, obviously. And I got on a plane and flew to Geneva with a gun case, and uh, walked up to the entrance of of the headquarters of UNHCR, and and um, with no appointment and and nobody knowing who I was and asked to see the people that looked after tents. <laughs> and I think, you know, people say about entrepreneurialism or whatever, and, and you know, and, and you can you can put all that in, you know, the, the sort of bucket that we're talking about. But to me, it was just blind faith. You know, why wouldn't anyone want to see this? Why wouldn't anybody want to know about what I'm doing? You know, the concept of, of somebody saying no, or that's ridiculous, or you're wasting our time just didn't enter my head. Whether that's naivety, I don't know, or, or just blind faith, or but I was just completely immersed in what I was doing, and I was completely focused on doing what I was doing. And I think people saw that in my eyes. You know, certainly my close friends and family around me in Australia could see it in my eyes. They'd they'd seen, you know, a, a quiet hurt Simon, and suddenly there was Simon with a spark in him again, and and it was infectious. And and I, I remember those times really, really well. And and quite often I talk about you know, putting, putting your finger in the electricity socket and feeling that charge, you know, that's what it was like. I'd come alive again. And I think when I, when I got to the headquarters in Geneva, I think they saw it in my eyes as well. And, and by the end of the day, after many different people coming down and sussing me out and wondering who this strange Englishman was at, at, the, at, the, front, at the main entrance of, of the headquarters, it wasn't until they found out that I was actually, I'd actually come all the way from Australia that they, they, that they let me in. And by the end of the day, I, I, had, a, I had a meeting with, with the people that did look after tents at UNHCR. And um, I presented my, my innovation to them, my prototype to them. And, uh, and it, was, it was a wonderful moment. It was, you know, very proud of that. And, and the people in the room were very humble and, and appreciative of me making the time to go there. And you know, long story short, but when I headed back to Australia after these after these meetings, there was something different about me, and everybody could see that. And you know, I, I'm not great. I, I don't have a tremendous amount of friends or a huge network or anything like that. Certainly didn't back then. But word word got out, I guess, that Simon, you know, has something that he's working on that is exciting, and and people were drawn to it. And and I guess my enthusiasm was slightly infectious and and that that created an environment where people wanted to invest and support me to do what I needed to do and I think I look back on that that time and we raised a lot of money in a very short period of time 
but it was all very, everybody that were investing, yeah, they wanted a return on their money and, and that's, that's completely right and fair, but they, they wanted to see something good. You know, they wanted to see something impactful and, and they wanted to support a person or a company that was going to try and do really good things. And, and that, that to me was huge, far more rewarding that to have their support and confidence than it was to have, to, to have their investment. That was a wonderful part of learning as well around, you know, people, people invest in businesses all the time and, and, you know, philanthropists do amazing things with, with, with their donations as well. And the learning curve of understanding that people are quite willing to support an organization that is going to put lives first over profit was, was quite a profound moment for me as well. In your entrepreneurial journey, did the concept then of Solar Buddy come about? I, I see in the timeline that it was about four years difference between Brightbeam and Solar Buddy. What changed about the way you viewed your contribution and design and the needs that you could build from Brightbeam and the and the the camps and refugees you were serving to propel you into achieving broader goals? So the whole time with Brightbeam, and, and that's you know ongoing, but I was working in, in refugee camps. I was working across Africa and in, in the Middle East. You know, I was, I was in Iraq and Jordan and for the Syrian crisis and Darfur and Chad and Ethiopia, Somalia, Djibouti for the Somali and Darfuri crisis. And, you know, there, there was a notion, an understanding within the refugee camps that there was a level of security and safety and protection Rightly so, completely rightly so, and 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 a, and a certain amount of equipment and 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 supplies that that the UN obviously provides. But I still saw abject poverty and some terrible things. But I used to take myself out of the camps and and socialize and and learn from the people that live in Somalia full time, and they're not they're not refugees or on the border with Ethiopia and 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 um, you know same in Chad in. South Sudan and stuff. And, and that's where I saw extreme energy poverty in its most extreme forms, you know, no support from the UN, very, very minimal support from, from local or, or, or national government. And, you know, the abject poverty, and, but still the community was, was a real sort of eye-opener for me. And me, by spending more and more time in these communities, that's when I really start to consider the impact of what extreme energy poverty really is and how big a problem it really was. And ultimately, being an alienated father of three children, and, and which, you know, pains me then and it pains me still now, every day, every minute, seeing children trying to have fun and study and be children while breathing in this horrific toxic smoke that I couldn't sit around for longer than a minute, you know, and as a children's book author as well, and I, I used to love taking, you know, my books in and just reading them, showing them the pictures and, you know, we'd all hang out and everyone would be having fun. But ultimately we were just breathing in this terrible toxic smoke. And and that was when I was like, you know what, this isn't enough. I need to do more. I need, I need, to, I need to tell the world about this goddamn awful problem because nobody knew about it. And working, working in, you know, pre-Solar Buddy, I'd, I'd come to America and back to Australia and the UK and stuff and, and talk. people would say, oh, what are you up to now, Simon? I'd be like, oh, I'm doing this. And, well, what's energy poverty? And no one knew anything about it. I couldn't, I couldn't raise more capital because no one knew what energy poverty was. There was resistance around, you know, oh, you're working in Africa, you're working here, you're working there, and, you know, in stable economies and unstable economies and, and all the rest of it. And... I was like, this is absolute nonsense and people are dying and dying by the millions and it's predominantly children and, and women. And I just felt completely compelled again to step up and do more. And I couldn't not, I couldn't turn away. And for my own children, for my own children to be ultimately, hopefully one day proud of me and, 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 and look back on what I've, what I've committed to and, and do and hopefully have a smile on their face. But for the children that, again, are just trying to get up and, 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 and learn and develop and, and get themselves out of poverty through education. And I, I wanted to do more, and that's where Solar Buddy came from. 
Hey, I know you are a savvy listener. Heck, you're listening to Suncast. And you've probably, as a result, heard of a little company called SunGrow. If you're not using SunGrow inverters on your projects, I would love to better understand why. They are the inverter of choice for many of the EPCs that I know. SunGrow is the number one in gigawatts deployed. They've got the top bankability in the industry. Hexsolve uses them for the majority of their projects. And you may not even know, but SunGrow has the largest R&D team in the power electronics industry. These three key points alone have convinced most of the major U.S. developers to prefer SunGrow. They now experience a diversified supply chain, local service team, patented containerized product, all with their seamless, pain-free commissioning. Look, imitation is the highest form of flattery. So why spend all of your cycles on what inverter to use when the largest EPC in the land has already done the heavy lifting for you? You can have their same experience for your projects. See how at mysuncast.com forward slash sungrow. Hey, pardon the interruption, but I wanted to just let you know how much of an impact you have on Suncast. Yeah, you. Thank you for clicking play. Without you, this show is just me shouting into the void. But there's still people who don't even know about Suncast. I know. I can hardly believe it myself. (laughs) But that's where you can help me yet again. There's a simple way that you can show some love and help others discover the show. If you cruise over to www.ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast. I'd love it if you would leave a five-star rating and enthusiastic review. That's possibly the single kindest thing that you could do for me today. So if the show has helped, inspired, or even entertained you at all, I'd love it if you would head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast and give me a virtual two thumbs up. All right, back to today's episode. I know through our conversations that you have over time developed a model that ties closely to, rightly, I believe, to the sustainable development goals of the United Nations. Could you talk to me about what the SDGs mean for you and how you are working towards achieving either them broadly or or, or specific SDGs? Mm -hmm. I'm so proud to be, you know, a commentator or or somebody that has insight on, on the sustainable development goals. I think they're wonderful in, in the sense of the marketing and the knowledge and, and the awareness that they create, you know, the bright colors, the, sim, the symbol pictography and, and the, the easy, easy aligned measurements that we can all, all, all aspire to. And I think it was genius in, in the learning that came out of the Millennium Goals that, you know, certainly in America, they're far more ingrained in, in, in education, in, in corporate world, and they're developing that, you know, in Australia and elsewhere. But I think personally, like I said, I, I think they're absolutely wonderful. They're, they're, the goals are exactly that. They're goals for us all to work towards and, and try and achieve by 2030. And I think there's going to be some successes, but there's going to be, unfortunately, some some misses as well. And, you know, we, we need to work harder to, to deal with that. But I'm, you know, everything I do, all, all, all the work I do in, in various businesses are in one way or another, aligned with with one or two or, or more of the goals and, and I'm very very proud of that and very passionate about it um obviously quality education is something that that I'm hugely passionate about um providing children with a safe environment to study in whether that's you know a roof over their head a good teacher good um equipment decent lighting safe areas for girls to study in and, and, and shoes for them to go to school in and sanitary sanitary pads for them to go to school in with and, and everything like that. There's there's so many very you know, so many elements to, to what we need to do to provide quality education that so many people don't think about. And that's that's what I'm massively devoted to to try and help create. Yeah, it's so interesting, right? Because the age old we're both salespeople and marketing uh, folks and the age old question of like of the idea of selling a pencil, there's an, there's, a, there's an anecdote that the way to sell a pencil is not to talk about the quality of the wood, or the permanence of the lead, but the actual device's design. It's to, it's to express your ideas, right? And I think 
that that's a piece that you've clearly tapped into that a lot of folks, maybe they overlook or they miss or they, they, they aren't aware of the freedom created. You've mentioned a number of times here that the light is a medium. It's a medium in the way that the lead and a pencil is a medium. It is, a, it is an opportunity afforded a child in many, in many cases and adults and in, in also, also in, in most cases as well, but opportunity afforded a child to be able to have access to things that we take for granted, like education, like clean air, right? Two things that we consider human rights, education and clean air, that a light is a simple vector for providing that, that, that sense of security. With that in mind, walk me through a typical corporate engagement where you help folks understand the purpose of the product that is Solar Buddy. So we, we've, we've been lucky to work with, you know, huge multinationals uh, since we started back in 2016. And almost always we, we have the, what sometimes we call the secret source of the oh wow moment, you know, um, because so few people really comprehend energy poverty, let alone extreme energy poverty and, and the impact it has and the ripple effect it has on, on hundreds of millions of people around the world. So we, as soon as we start talking and explaining the impact, the, the detriments of energy poverty, extreme energy poverty, we have that, oh, wow. And, and then there's this, oh, wow, I didn't know that moment. And then there's this, holy shit, I need to do something about it. Now I feel really bad I didn't know about it. And that opens up a whole Pandora's box of opportunities for us where we can engage and in, in inform and inspire and in, in, in hopefully uh, take on a journey of, of impact, you know. So from a, from a corporate perspective, we we've, we very simply highlight the problem, highlight we have solutions, technology is there, and you guys have the power to help us provide those solutions to, to, um, to so many children in communities around the world. And almost always the concept of something so simple and so cost-effective and so technologically basic, essentially, can ultimately transform a child's life. That is a notion that overwhelms people with with a sense of, you know, achievement, a sense of empowerment to, to the child, and also, you know, a sense of relief that they can actually do something so quick and easy. Do you know, yeah. do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, explain to me what it actually looks like for those who've never seen the video, which will certainly link to one of your presentations uh, that I've had a pl the privilege of seeing. If I am you know, working at Autodesk, who I know partners with you. And, and I've been called into this sort of corporate meeting and Simon Doubles extolling the values and virtues of providing light to, to folks in Africa. What, what happens then that connects them physically to the act? So we, we open up by explaining what the, what the problem is and, and, you know, this huge issue around the world and there's a little bit of despondency, I guess. And, you know, and we, we, we go to, you know, certain lengths of, of highlighting the the impact it has on children pr primarily and, and you know from an economic point of view how much it costs in families to to to, to provide light and in firewood for cooking and what have you and then we talk about the health implications of extreme energy poverty and and then the missed opportunities around education trying to study under a kerosene lantern when you know it gives off such toxic smoke that you can't study for longer than 20 or 30 minutes because your eyes are streaming so we demonstrate the the problem and then we really 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 highlight the solution and how simple it really is and how impactful it so it, it really is for for children and and you know throughout the seminar and the session we we then provide everybody in the room whether it's you know 50 people or a thousand people or you know the biggest one we've done is three and a half thousand people and suddenly they have a, a solar light kit on their on their table in front of them, a solar buddy solar light kit. And we explain to them that they're now going to be able to put a solar light together and make it work. And they're going to have some fun doing it. And then once they've done that, we then explain to them that that very light, that they're now going to write a letter to accompany that light with that very light within a few weeks is going to be in the hand of a child somewhere in sub-Saharan Africa or elsewhere in the world. And that light is going to illuminate their future. They write a letter. Yeah. Yeah. What a magic touch. It's really, it's really emotional. It's, it's, um, you know, it's really profound for a lot of people. I've had, you know, 20 year olds, 50 year olds, 70 year olds crying on my shoulder saying yeah. this, this is one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had. I, I never, ever forget 
uh, one of the first times I ever presented on stage, a gentleman who grew up in a refugee camp who, who you know, was relocated to um, somewhere in Europe, I can't remember, and ha- has had a wonderful career. And he wrote two letters. He wrote one to himself back then when he was in a refugee camp to the child who was going to receive his light and, and how inspiring he, he, he was to provide this light to this child. He'd never meet. And, and he wrote another letter to me and he said, don't open this till you get home. And I've got that on my wall in, in my house now and back in Australia. And, and it, he, he's the children that we're working for now to be in his position now. And he's, he said to me, he said, if I had a light like you're providing to children around the world, my life would have been so much better. And, you know, you can't grasp that. I mean, I cried my eyes out. I went back to my hotel room and I sat on the end of the bed and I cried my eyes out because I knew then that what we do means something and, and it's going to have an impact and it's going to change lives. And that's, that's, that's infectious. You can't, you can't walk away from that in, you know, hardest days, the longest days, you, you, you go back to those times and, and you, you get up and go again, you know? Well, I want to, I want to harness the emotion and the opportunity that is presented to understand a little better how Solar Buddy is expanding that mission. My understanding is as a nonprofit, you partner with corporate partners, obviously for, for financial contributions, but how do you, how do you, how did you go about proliferating Solar Buddy as a business around the world? Uh, you, you know, I believe you're recently opening an office even here in the United States in, in Texas. Yes. Yep. It was always the plan to be in America. It was always the plan to grow. Um, initially, my plan was to do do a number of proof of concepts in Australia, in a, in a in a fairly understood market. Twenty six million people live in Australia. It's quite it's quite sort of relatively easy to to build a brand, you know, over there. I guess. And it was always my plan to to expand. There's eight hundred million plus people that live in extreme energy poverty. So, you know. We're moving away from the 6 million lights now and in, in, in going above and beyond that, but also positioning ourselves as the voice of advocacy around extreme energy poverty, which doesn't just talk about policy and talk about the, the problem, but actually is, you know, actively creating solutions as we go. And, and I think that's where we're going to position ourselves moving forward. And that's, um, well, I know that's how we're going to position ourselves moving forward. And across, across America, that's... Um, that's probably the biggest opportunity we have to to create more impact is is focus on the you know highlighting the problem and in, in the solutions at the same time and, and and moving forward that way. But from from inception, you know, very quickly we were in multiple countries. Obviously, big organisations and and conferences and and different people around the world heard about our work. You know, the whole ripple effect takes effect. School children go home and talk to their parents. Their parents talk to their friends. Suddenly, we got CEOs CEOs ringing us up, saying, "You taught my daughter something at school, and she won't stop talking about it. Please come and see me. I'm interested to hear." And and you know, and then that company tells another company because they're proud of the work they're doing with us. And suddenly, we're we're all across the world working in in um, various jurisdictions. And and I think that's that's the power of the model and, and power of people as well, being very. Again, that oh, oh wow moment. I didn't know anything about that, but I can do something about it because this is so tangible and simple and, and direct. And and people just feel compelled to be willing to support that. And, and we sort of grown on the back of that, really. So it's very much people power. What are the areas of need structurally for Solar Buddy? You've got the year of thousands of solar warriors in the Suncast tribe. How can we help? Oh, there's, you know, obviously spreading the word of solar buddy and, and, and extreme energy poverty and, and what we aim to do and, and, and ending that for children around the world. We're a non-profit, so donations are, are wonderful to us. You know, we, we, love, our, we love our solar warriors that, that donate $30 a month. And that, that's one light to one child every single month, guaranteed, $30 a month. And, and that's just consistent supply of lights to children around the world. And, you know, that enables us to streamline our logistics and, you know, everything like that. And, you know, we provide, you know, report cards and imagery and, and thank you letters from, from the children that, that receive those lights and, and build a real community. And that's where the name comes from, Solar Buddy, right? Everybody becomes buddies through solar. And, and that's the idea. Somebody makes a light or gives a light to the child. 
they're then solar buddies for life and not thunder buddies, solar buddies. <laughs> and, um, you know, that's, that's kind of where it comes from. So I love it. Well, Simon, in a moment, I'll give you an opportunity to let folks know where they can find out more about you. Before we do that, a couple of questions that I want to ask as we wrap. As a serial entrepreneur and a businessman, and you've talked a bit about mentorship, you've had great mentors in your life. I wonder if there are particular things that you've learned that have been instilled in you from mentors that you now pass along. What do you think about from the perspective of the key takeaways for business that you might pass along now to the Suncast tribe? I think being a founder is, you know, we, we talked briefly about this before, you know, I, I wear a founder's hat with pride and, you know, I, I'm very much, you know, I've founded a lot of businesses over the years and, and don't consider it anything extraordinary or exceptional. It's just who I am. And a lot of founders, inventors, innovators, startup guys, they, they struggle to get past the next stage and founders that start a business, but are, are quite comfortable and stepping aside when the time is right, bringing people in that are passionate and, and, and more knowledgeable potentially is really important. Knowing when that time is, is able, is, is the right time to do that. And being able and confident enough to do that is really, really important. I see so many founders per se that refuse to get out of the way and they become, they, they become their own problem. And it's so, so often, and they come to me, you know, and I've, I've spoken to so many of them over the years and I can't seem to, can't seem to get to the next level. I can't seem to, and it's like, well, you've got to get out of your own shadow, mate. You've got to, you've got to get out your own way and, and let people that, that you've brought on and, and nurtured and mentored and supported and believe in to do, to do their job. And, you know, if that means you've got to go on and find, be a founder of something else, um, so be it. And that's where I ended up with multiple businesses. And, you know, I'm here in America. I should have been here in America with Solar Buddy two years ago, but COVID hit. Um, I've waited patiently for two years and, and now I'm I'm a founder again, even though it's still Solar Buddy, I'm starting something again and it's so exciting. And, and that's where that's where I feel energized. So I think being brave enough to go and start a business is phenomenally brave. And, and I, I, I commend everybody that does that. And, and it's, it takes a lot of herbs, as I say. But also being brave enough to know when to step out of the way as well. And, and that's, that's where so many people fail. And, and, and it's sad to see, but, you know, because it's, we've talked about businesses being our babies, you know, and we've talked about, you know, holding them tight and, and, and all the rest of it. And you do, you nurture them. You, you, but someday those, babe, those children go off to kindergarten. And then they go off to primary school and then they go off to high school and then they go off to university. Knowing when it's time for, for your businesses to go off to kindergarten and step out of the way is, is a very, very valuable asset. I believe that leaders are readers and readers are leaders. And I wonder if there might be a book or two that have informed or influenced the way that you think about building business or building leadership into your organizations. I think leaders are born, to be honest with you. You know, you can, you can develop and evolve and learn as you go and trip up as you go and being able to dust yourself down and get on with it again is, is a part of that. But I ultimately, I, I've, I've learned to be a better leader as I've grown up and matured. And I think my forties, I've probably really realized that and my shoulders are broader and things don't hurt my ego quite so much anymore, you know, but I think that, that there's one book, um, Sir Alex Ferguson, he, he, you know, very famous, uh, inspirational manager of Man United. I'm not a Manchester United fan, by the way, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not blindsided enough to not, not respect Sir Alex Ferguson. Um, and if he's listening, Sir Alex, you're an amazing human being. But um, he, he, he co-wrote a book with um, Harvard Law School, Harvard Business School, sorry. You know, I've read the book a number of times and, and he, he says, my job wasn't to manage, my job was to lead. And, and to lead is to make people believe the impossible was possible. Or the difference between managers and leaders is to help people believe that the impossible is possible. And I think that's, that's kind of where we are, you know, that's, that's how I see myself. I don't, I'm not a very good manager. I'm not a very good doer. I'm not a very good taskmaster and certainly not very good at, at the day-to-day -day of, of running a business. But I can truly believe in what I say and in, in what we can do. And, and I believe that the impossible is always possible. And my job is to do that, live that, breathe that, and inspire people around me to, to, to be the same. Is that book 
uh, called Leading, Learning from My Life and Years in Manchester United. Exactly. Well, Simon, I know that many listening are going to be inspired by the story, not just of Solar Buddy and Bright Beam, but of Simon Doble. Where do you like to be found personally? Can people reach out on LinkedIn? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to hear from you. Link, LinkedIn is, is, uh, is the best way to, to get hold of me. I've got a website as well, simondoble.com. Okay. Double um, D-O-B-L-E for the discerning. Yeah. And um, you can go on there and see a number of my initiatives. And, and if you're interested in the keynote, then my speaker reels on there and stuff. But uh, obviously, solarbuddy.org as well is, is, is where my heart is, as, as it is with all my businesses, but primarily SolarBuddy. And at SolarBuddy, they can go on not only and donate, but presumably find a way, if someone's listening that has a larger corporation, to bring you in to have that, that real tactile experience of building lights and sending them out to community. They could, have, they could find out more there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and also, you know, with a lot of your listeners, I'm, I'm sure that various, various sizes of businesses in, in this industry and we, we do a fair bit in Australia with, with solar companies and, you know, there's a, there's a number that for every install or, or every service they do, they donate a little light to, to a child elsewhere in the world. And, you know, we can geographically narrow that down to say the Dominican Republic or, or Haiti or somewhere local to, to the United States. There's, there's some quality marketing and messaging and, 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 um, corporate social responsibility around that. And, and obviously it's aligned with, with, with our industry. So that's very cool. You know. Yeah. That, that, that idea of corporate giving and tying what you're doing to every transaction that's happening is one we've talked about here on the show. And it's one that I know that resonates with folks in our industry. So I'm glad to hear that, 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 that is a possibility. Well, Simon, I want to thank you for taking the time to be here. And I want to finish the way we always do with our final question, which is a bold prediction. Simon, what one thing do you see happening that maybe nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball as we look out now over the next eight years to try to achieve these SDGs and reach 2030 and make an impact on people's lives? What are you tracking? Um, I'm quietly obsessed with the notion of, of the importance of how social enterprise is going to become over the next 10, 15 years in, in, in all economies. Bridging the gap between charity and nonprofit in large corporations and the, the modeling around, you know, so many really successful social enterprises and but but tweaking them to get them more impactful and and more fair i guess that idea of of the big gray area between you know big corporates and non-profits social small medium enterprises sort of morphing into social enterprises and, and carrying their their identity on their heart and, and their impact in their pockets and and moving forward that way i think is is a wonderful way that we can go as as, as business people and and i'm quite quite excited about the developments that I see in, in our industry and the people I meet in, in my work that are doing phenomenal things around food, around water, around energy, around homelessness, around all the, all the ills of the world, bringing innovation and ideas and empathy to those, those problems to, to make an impact on millions and millions of lives. That, that's me. Whilst um, making a business out of it at the same time, I, f- I think that's, that's, a wonderful time of our, our, our lives to be involved in. Simon Doble is the founder and CEO of Solar Buddy and Brightbeam and numerous businesses that we didn't talk about today. If you'd like to figure out how to have Simon be a part of your philanthropic component to your organization, feel free to reach out to him at solarbuddy.org, as he just mentioned. Simon, thank you for joining us on Suncast. Thank you, mate. It's been absolutely wonderful to be here. Thank you so much. All right, Solar Warrior. Well, that's a wrap on this conversation with my friend, Simon Doble. Simon, I just want to say once again, how inspired I am by you, how much I want to see you succeed and the work that Solar Buddy is doing and the other businesses that you have invested in and nurtured. I wish you well, my friend. I hope that you as a listener have learned how to cultivate generosity, curiosity, creativity, ingenuity in your life through this episode. If you're eager to connect with Simon or keep learning, you, my fellow Philomath, can go find resources and highlights from this and frankly, every other discussion, along with the social media links for Simon and his businesses, the book recommendations that we touch on here, and so much more at the blog at mysuncast.com. Click on the episodes tab. Fun fact, pro tip, if you scroll all the way to the bottom of the homepage, there's a search bar. 
I don't know if many of you use that, but you can search for any episode, and that's a fast way to find it if if you're finding your way, if you're finding yourself lost in the episode. But since you're already going to be hopping online, I know many, many, many of you are already connected with me on LinkedIn. Please do connect on LinkedIn. You'll see that's where we share more insight, and that's how we share the links and make it easy. I'd love it if you'd connect with me. Just hit like or love or support or even curious or light bulb on that LinkedIn post and leave a note of what you thought of this episode and what you'd like to learn, what else you'd like to know about Simon. And join us again next week as we go into another Tactical Tuesday and another Practical Long-Form Executive Profile on Thursdays with the industry's leading minds helping expand this energy transition, the clean energy economy that we are all leaning into. Thanks once again to our sponsors. They help make this content free to you each and every week. You can learn more about them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. And hey, that's also where you can learn how you could partner with us to reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions twice a week, just like they do. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, solar warrior. It's half the battle.